0: The Great Spirit, by S. A. Zitkala, taken from American Indian Stories, read for LibriVox.org, by Robert Scott. Hello, Aiden. This is Uncle Bob. I'm going to read you The Great Spirit, by S. A. Zitkala. Settle in, buddy. The Great Spirit When the Spirit swells my breast, I love to roam leisurely among the green hills, or sometimes, sitting on the brink of the murmuring Missouri, I marvel at the great blue overhead. With half-closed eyes I watch the huge cloud-shadows in their noiseless play upon the high bluffs opposite me, while into my ear ripple the sweet, soft cadences of the river's song. Folded hands lie in my lap, for the time forgot. My heart and I lie small upon the earth, like a grain of throbbing sand. Drifting clouds and tinkling waters, together, with the warmth of a genial summer day, bespeak with eloquence the loving mystery round about us. During the idle, while I sat upon the sunny river brink, I grew somewhat, though my response be not so clearly manifest as in the green grass fringing the edge of the high bluff back of me. At length, retracing the uncertain footpath scaling the precipitous embankment, I seek the level lands where grow the wild prairie flowers, and they, the lovely little folk, soothe my soul with their perfumed breath. Their quaint round faces of varied hue convince the heart, which leaps with glad surprise, that they, too, are living symbols of omnipotent thought. With a child's eager eye I drink in the myriad star-shapes wrought in luxuriant color upon the green. Beautiful is the spiritual essence they embody. I leave them nodding in the breeze but take along with me their impress upon my heart, I pause to rest upon a rock embedded on the side of a foothill facing the low river bottom. Here the stone boy, of whom the American Aborigine tells, frolics about, shooting his baby arrows, and shouting aloud with glee at the tiny shafts of lightning that flash from the flying arrow-brakes. What an ideal warrior he became, baffling the siege of the pests of all the land, till he triumphed over their united attack, and here he lay, Inyan, our great-great-grandfather, older than the hill he rested on, older than the race of men who loved to tell of his wonderful career. Interwoven with the thread of this Indian legend of the rock, I fain would trace a subtle knowledge of the native folk which enabled them to recognize a kinship to any and all parts of this vast universe. By the leading of an ancient trail, I moved toward the Indian village, with the strong, happy sense that both great and small, are so surely enfolded in his magnitude, that, without a miss, each has his allotted individual ground of opportunities. I am buoyant with good nature. Yellow-breast, swaying upon the slender stem of a wild sunflower, warbles a sweet assurance of this as I pass near by. Breaking off the clear crystal song, he turns his wee head from side to side, eyeing me wisely and slowly, as I plod by with moccasined feet. Then again he yields himself to his song of joy. Flit, flit, hither and yon, he fills the summer sky with his sweet, swift melody, and truly, does it seem, his vigorous freedom lies more in his little spirit than in his wing. With these thoughts I reach the log cabin whither I am strongly drawn by the tie of a child to an aged mother. Out bounds my four-footed friend to meet me, frisking about my path with unmistakable delight. Chan is a black shaggy dog, a thoroughbred mongrel, of whom I am very fond. Chan seems to understand many words in Sue, and will go to her mat even when I whisper the word though generally I think she is guided by the tone of voice. Often she tries to imitate the sliding inflection and long, drawn-out voice to the amusement of our guests, but her articulation is quite beyond my ear. In both my hands I hold her shaggy head and gaze into her large brown eyes. At once the dilated pupil's contract into tiny black dots, as if the roguish spirit within would evade my questioning. Finally, resuming the chair at my desk, I feel in keen sympathy with my fellow creatures, for I seem to see clearly again that all are akin. The racial lines which were once bitterly real now serve nothing more than marking out a living mosaic of human beings. And even here. Men of same color are like the ivory keys of one instrument, Where each resembles all the rest, yet varies from them In pitch and quality of voice. And those creatures who are for a time mere echoes of another's note Are not unlike the fable of the thin sick man, whose distorted shadow, Dressed like a real creature, came to the old master to make him follow as a shadow. Thus, with a compassion for all echoes in human guise, I greet the solemn-faced native preacher whom I find awaiting me. I listen with respect for God's creature, though he mouth most strangely the jangling phrases of a bigoted creed. As our tribe is one large family, where every person is related to all the others, he addressed me. "'Cousin, I came from the morning church service to talk with you.' "'Yes,' I said interrogatively, as he paused for some word from me. Shifting uneasily about in the straight-backed chair he sat upon, he began, "'Every holy Sunday I look about our little God's house and not seeing you there, I am disappointed. This is why I came today, Cousin, as I watch you from afar, I see no unbecoming behavior, and hear only good reports of you, which all the more burns me with the wish that you were a church member. Cousin, I was taught long years ago by kind missionaries to read the holy book these godly men taught me also, the folly of our old beliefs. There is one God who gives reward or punishment to the race of dead men. In the upper region the Christian dead are gathered in unceasing song and prayer. In the deep pit below, the sinful ones dance in torturing flames. Think upon these things, my cousin and choose now to avoid the after-doom of hell-fire. Then followed a long silence in which he clasped tighter and unclasped again his interlocked fingers. Like instantaneous lightning flashes came pictures of my own mother's making, for she, too, is now a follower of the new superstition. Knocking out the chinking of our log cabin, some evil hand thrust in a burning taper of braided dry grass, but failed of his intent, for the fire died out, and the half-burned brand fell inward to the floor. Directly above it, on a shelf, lay the holy book. This is what we found after our return from a several days' visit. Surely some great power is hid in the sacred book. Brushing away from my eyes, many like pictures, I offered midday meal to the converted Indian sitting wordless, with downcast face. No sooner had he risen from the table, with cousin, I have relished it, than the church bell rang. Thither he hurried forth with his afternoon sermon. I watched him as he hastened along, His eyes bent fast upon the dusty road till he disappeared at the end of a quarter mile. The little incident recalled to mind the copy of a missionary paper brought to my notice a few days ago, in which a Christian pugilist commented upon a recent article of mine, grossly pervading the spirit of my pen. Still, I would not forget that the pale-faced missionary And the hoodooed aborigine are both God's creatures, though small indeed, their own conceptions of infinite love. A wee child toddling in a wonder world, I prefer to their dogma my excursions into the natural gardens, where the voice of the great spirit is heard in the twittering of birds the rippling of mighty waters, and the sweet breathing of flowers. Here, in a fleeting quiet, I am awakened by the fluttering robe of the Great Spirit. To my innermost consciousness, the phenomenal universe is a royal mantle, vibrating with his divine breath. Caught in its flowing fringes are the spangles and oscillating brilliance of sun and Moon and stars. End of story. Good night, Aiden. Sleep tight. The Great Spirit, by S. A. Zitkala, recorded by Robert Scott for LibriVox.org, Winder, Georgia, June the fifteenth, two thousand and seven.